If you have a personality like mine where I am very anti-confrontational, I don't like to make waves with anyone, you have to really push past that mentality because it can be a huge hindrance in asking for things and getting things that maybe you deserve because you're like, I don't want to bother them. I don't want to make them mad at me. No, you have, it's like the one main thing you have to push past to get what you want. Hello, and welcome to episode 41 of Webflail. I'm your host, Jack, a failure connoisseur, and today my guest is Elsa Amri. Elsa is a Tanzanian-based developer and Webflow designer and founder of AM Design Studio. She hosts Adobe Live Sessions on YouTube, she's a Floxy's ambassador, and she's an ADP list mentor community advocate. Perhaps most importantly, though, she was the 2021 Webflow Speed Build Challenge winner. If you want a wild ride, get on YouTube after this episode. During Webflail podcast episode 41, we talk about accepting free or low paid jobs due to lack of confidence, letting herself stall on reworking her portfolio for a year, continuing working with a client that mistreated another coworker. So embrace and learn from failure in episode 41 of Webflail with Elsa Amri. Elsa, welcome to the Webflow podcast. Thank you. I am super psyched to be here. <laughs> it is great to have you. And like I mentioned during that introduction, you are insanely busy. I mean, how do you <laughs> manage to juggle all that stuff? Oh my gosh. Now that you've listed all those different things I've done, I'm like, how? How did I do it last year? How do I keep doing it this year? Um, I will say it's probably not easy, but I'm also the type of person who I can't just do one thing. I'm always thinking like, I have an hour free time. Let me make a Webflow template. I have two hours to spare. Let me create a YouTube video. Like I can't just chill, basically. So it's how I am. I kind of think there's a common theme with Webflowers. Like there's a lot of people who say, I kind of flit around and it's quite hard for me to focus on one thing. But I actually think that can be a real strength, you know, in the sense that mm -hmm. you can, as a freelancer, you kind of need to be able to shift um, focus quite quickly, I think. So mm -hmm. kind of pros and cons to everything with that. But one of your biggest, biggest assets, maybe. Thank you. I mean, it's always fun to learn new skills. Like you said, it just makes you seem more valuable to someone who knows that you can do YouTube editing and graphics design and you can build with Framer and Webflow and, you know, it just makes you more appealing. Yeah, definitely. And you've obviously got quite a big caring aspect to your, yourself. You know, you do a lot of mentoring. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I'm like a mentor community advocate. So basically, I was helping support the mentors in the voluntary role. I haven't applied to be a mentor just because the funny thing is, I still feel like I don't know, like I'm not fit enough to be a mentor. Like there's so much more I need to learn and skills that I need to obtain this year. So maybe next year I'll consider applying for the mentor role. But I like to give back to the community by just volunteering with different organizations like Floxies. We started a Tanzanian local chapter for Floxies. So I'm also doing a lot of work with that. We have our first meetup next week. So I like to give back in that, you know, more of like a group type of thing. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's so important as well from the point of view of the, the community growing mm -hmm. just generally that people who have learned from others, then mm -hmm. once they have learned can, you know, share what, what they've learned. And there's this kind of continuous cycle or like compound yeah. effect of growth from 
everyone learning, sharing, and then learning to share. And then that kind of cycle continues. It's, it's so good yeah. to see. Yeah, exactly. And what's the scene like, the Webflow scene like in Tanzania? Um, I bet it's pumping. <laughs> that would be amazing. I actually don't, I haven't personally met a lot of Webflow developers based here or who are from here. I know of a few online. Um, I haven't met any other female Webflow developers here. So I think it's still something that's fairly new. You know, a lot of people are used to traditional coding methods. So you'll meet a lot of people who are good at HTML, CSS, JavaScript, PHP, whatever it is. But when it comes to stuff like Webflow or Framer, I still think that those are pretty new tools that haven't been adapted as widely here. But I'm hoping that changes in like the next couple of years. And what's different about, you know, you finding that out then? How how has that come about? How did you come across Webflow and Framer and different uh, no-code tools? Um, I think it's just because I'm very much online or I was in the beginning of my career very much active on social media. So LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. I wanted to put myself out there. I was looking for jobs. So I just felt like I had to be more active in these online spaces. And I think that's how I got to learn about these different tools and I remember when I first learned about Webflow, I was kind of figuring out what to do with my first portfolio. I thought about making it in um, Squarespace, I think. Then I found out about Webflow and I was like, okay, this looks pretty cool. Let me see if I can learn that. And fortunately, that worked out. So I really think it's because I was just really active online and connecting with different people. And eventually you hear about all these new tools that come out. Yeah, definitely. It's really, really amazing, like the privilege I have to talk to people all over the world that have found out about yeah. Webflow. Because I think sometimes there's a kind of center in the US and then you're like, oh my God, there's people all over the world that are, that are using Webflow and it's obviously still so young. So it's so exciting. Yeah. And something that I wanted to ask you, I mean, your website, if anyone's listening to this and hasn't yet, visited Elsa's website it's so cool it feels kind <laughs> of like you enter Elsa's social media platform it's crazy it's it's like there's different panels and you've obviously got like a very um clear sense of aesthetic how did that come about how did you actually learn you know design principles and because learning webflow is one thing but actually yeah. making a website look nice in webflow is a whole different skill set very much agreed it's like two different things and well, before I learned Webflow, I did work as a designer. So I worked at an agency as an art director. I worked in another company as a graphics designer. So I did like a good year of just doing like proper design work. And then by the time I started learning Webflow, I more or less had enough knowledge about design, UI, UX design, and also graphics design. So Webflow was more about putting it together to actually build something. But I think I've taken like two courses in my life that have also helped out. One was with Udemy, which is like this course platform. I did the UI UX design course with them, which was really good. And then I've also done one with the Interaction Design Foundation. So that was definitely more um, theoretical, more on the UX side of things, but still really good. You learn about research and the process behind user research, which was really important. So those two courses were also really essential. Like you said, I think design, some people are really good at just knowing what looks good and what works. But I also found that it helps to take these online courses and lessons and really understand the principles behind different design elements. Yeah, definitely. And I also think like there's you can always pick up stuff from all over. Yeah. You know, you might do a course mm -hmm. here, course there. It doesn't really matter yeah. what level you're at. There's always like interesting different takes on processes and 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 what yeah. makes, um, a good design a good design, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so 
you were working in an agency. You've obviously now started your own thing. Is that an agency as in you're employing other people or you collaborate with other people or kind of does it depend on the size of the job? What type of uh, agency is it? Right now, it's still in its early stages because the past year I've been mostly consulting with other agencies. So I wanted to kind of learn how do people do things with their own agencies, which I think is super essential before jumping into, you know, doing your own thing. And I've learned so much. So now I'm kind of in the early stages of trying to see how I want my agency to work. So I'm more in the collaborative stage in that if I have a gig that I can do, I'll pass it on to someone else. So more like referring other people for certain jobs. But eventually or like pretty soon, I'm hoping I can hire or like bring someone on board to work with me on a more intimate basis. And that should be fun because I've been doing this solo for a while. So we'll see how that works. Wow. Okay. So that's really interesting. It's great to hear that you've actually gone into other agencies and done that because I think a lot of people, because the barrier to entry to, Mm -hmm. you know, create an agency in the sense that you have a website that says, you know, you're an agency is actually quite low with Webflow. You know, there seems to be quite a lot of agencies that are very, very young. And Mm -hmm. it's really interesting to hear that you've actually been like, I know I want to start an agency in the future, but what I'm going to do is kind of see behind the curtain of how successful agencies are run, see what their process and systems are, and then kind of take all the best bits and, and um, bring that into your own thing. I think that's a really wise way of going about it. Was that a very conscious decision? A bit of both. It wasn't, it was intentional in the sense I knew I wanted to get this behind the scenes experience and learn from people who had more knowledge than me. But also I just wasn't at a point a year ago or two years ago where I could just start an agency. I did not know nearly enough. Like I was not prepared at all to kind of take that upon myself. So I basically had to kind of get work experience by consulting with agencies or working full time at different companies. That was absolutely necessary for me at the time. I think it's such a good way of doing it though. And and obviously when you work with other agencies, you kind of, you not only, you know, do good work with different more more talented and more experienced people at that stage of your career but also you know you get access to the type of projects that you just wouldn't as a freelancer and if you just try and start from the get-go as a freelancer to get it you know to run an agency you're kind of in between stages as it were yeah. you don't you don't really know how to get agency exactly. type clients and I think yeah. your your mindset is probably quite different as a freelancer compared to an agency owner I'd imagine Um, Yes. And I think also the really neat thing is just the connections and relationships you build by doing that. Like mm -hmm. I consult with crew. That's kind of the main agency I work with. And Jordan, who's the founder, is so amazing. And that's a relationship that I really value. So it helps you meet people whom you might not have otherwise have met if you didn't start working with them or have interacted with as much. So I think that's also a really great part of it. Yeah. And you can kind of ask another agency and hey, as someone that's, you know, getting clients as consistently as you are on this scale, how do you go about that? And you, you've already mm-hmm. got that network to like lean on. Um, yeah. I've also noticed with agencies that seem to be quite successful, they also have quite a good referral scheme with other agencies or at least partnerships with other agencies, i.e., you know, we can do the design for this, for this, but, you know, can you take the dev on there's kind of, um, you know, relationship that happens within agency culture as well so i think that's also another thing that's really interesting about what you've done 
and and built that and fostered that. So question, if someone is thinking about starting an agency and they're quite young, starting out with Webflow, do you think it would be better to potentially just take a step back and just ask yourself why you want to start an agency? Because I think that's an important question for for people to understand. You know, there's all sorts of different yeah. types of ways of freelancing. How did you come to decide that you actually wanted to start your own agency? Um, I think for me, it's because on the one hand, I do enjoy working alone. Obviously, when you work alone, you can work according to the system that works for you, your own methods, your own way of doing things, and it's your work. So you're accountable mm-hmm. for everything. But I decided around a year ago that I wanted to explore branching out a bit more because my dream outcome down the line is to have an agency full of people who are similar to me. So other black women. And I've always just been so passionate about starting something like that. And so what I hope to get out of, you know, branching out with my agency is employing other women, other Tanzanian women, even hopefully or East African women, and just kind of collaborating with them to create amazing stuff. That's my like ideal scenario and one of the main reasons I wanted to branch out. That's such a cool dream. So you have a kind of higher purpose. Sometimes I think when people just say, I want to grow a massive, you know, a million dollar <laughs> agency or whatever. And I'm just like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> but like, is there anything like that number is just a number like, you know, is there any kind of other purpose to it and it's great to hear that you have like a kind of collaborative goal and, and also kind of a yeah, just a, a really heartwarming purpose to it. Yeah, That's no, great. thank you so much. Obviously, like becoming successful is something most people would want as well. But I think I'm also considering what will fuel me because sometimes you have goals and then when you're on the way trying to achieve those goals, you run out of steam. You know, the motivation is a bit lacking. So I think having a clear motivation that's outside of just being successful can really help too. Yeah, definitely. And I'd argue that, you know, having true fulfillment through what you do is mm-hmm. uh, is actually kind of beyond beyond money, I would say. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Maybe I'm going a bit deep for the podcast too. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get into some of your failures then. You sent me across some really thought-provoking things that, uh, yeah, we haven't actually had on the podcast yet, so I'm excited to get into these. Tell me about failure number one. When you accepted free or low-paying jobs because you weren't confident in your craft. Oh, I mean, isn't that the story of every... Every creative's life, when you asked me to send you those questions, that was the first thing I thought of because it's just one of those things that at the start of your career, for a lot of people, you can't escape. What is it called? Um, It's a certain kind of mentality. Imposter syndrome, in a way, is so much more apparent or those words are so much louder in your head when you're starting out because you're new, you don't know a lot. So for me, I think in the beginning, I just wanted experience. I wanted to go out there and, you know, get work and build my skills. And prior to getting my first design job, I did spend like a year in Japan figuring myself out, so to speak, after uni. (laughs) It was like my post-uni gap year. um, And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And it was during my time there that I decided, okay, when I'm done with this year and I go back home, I really want to, you know, pursue design. So even though I did practice my design skills as much as I could while I was, you know, in Japan, when I came back, I was still just really inexperienced. Like I only had one case study on my portfolio, which was like a personal project. And I remember thinking, if I can just get any job, 
that's good enough for me because that's what I believed at the time that, you know, companies might not want to pay me, but maybe they'll bring me on board and just give me work to do and I can build up my resume that way. So my first job was an unpaid internship. In a way, it was really good, not the unpaid part, but the actual job itself because I learned so much. I was a junior art director and they really put me through it, but it helped me learn a lot in terms of how to use these different programs like Photoshop, Illustrator, which I had never used before, you know, and After Effects and all these programs that were new to me. And so by the time I was done with that internship, like three months later, I felt so much more experienced and skilled in what I was doing. However, this is why I named it a failure because I did the unpaid internship and then my next job, um, Somebody, my manager from the first internship referred me and I went into that job and I still somehow had the mindset that I wasn't good enough yet to be paid like super well, like I was young. And so when they asked me, how much do you want to get paid? I just said a number that looking back was absurdly low. And unfortunately, a lot of companies are not going to hear that and be like, oh, no, we will pay you this much. Sometimes people will take what you tell them even if it's really, really low. And I hadn't really talked to a lot of designers. I didn't know what the average rate of pay was for the role I was entering in. I kind of just went into it thinking, I'm coming from an unpaid internship. I'll probably just accept a really low pay. I'll be thankful if they pay me this much. And so I gave them the number that I did. And six months later, I really regretted it because the thing is, when you feel like you're underpaid, it really affects how you perform at your job. You feel like you're not valued as much that you're putting in insane hours for very little pay and it was something that I regretted doing but also like a learning curve for me that I didn't need to have that mindset of I'm starting out so I shouldn't get paid a lot of money I can take the little that I get it was just a really bad mentality to have at the time okay I, I resonate so much with that <laughs> and I think a lot of people listening probably do as well money is like an exchange of value and if that doesn't feel good then obviously you you know, you're not going to give your best and you're going to just feel annoyed every time you get a paycheck. Yeah. It's like, ugh, like this, these guys <laughs> don't match my level of input to, you know, what they are giving in return. And that must be quite frustrating. But mm -hmm. I guess comparison to zero, you were like, hey, whatever I get, this is going to yeah. be hundreds of percent <laughs> more. So... So I guess that's that's maybe the strange like mentality shift that you went through in that period. But then you said, look, guys, I know I went, I know I lowballed myself at the start. You need to pay me properly or kind of how did you, <laughs> how did you get out of this situation? I was like, pay me more or else. Pay me more or I'm leaving. I'm dipping. <laughs> um, no, no, I like my personality is definitely not that. I think <laughs> the funny thing is, it took me a while to really um, understand how low I was being paid until we found out how some how much someone else who was in a similar or to my, similar role to myself was being paid. Then I was like, "Oh wow, I really lowballed myself." And that was when I started thinking, "Why did I like kind of name this price, etc." But it wasn't until I think five months later that I actually asked for a raise, which is funny because I ended up leaving a month later for like school purposes, but. At the time, I didn't know if I was going to leave or not, so I wanted to ask for the rings. And so I did. And the interesting thing about that scenario is I knew I was doing good work. You know, I was always showing up to work, doing what needed to be done, 
like there weren't any areas that I was slacking in, regardless of the pay. So I knew that they might like me enough and might like my work enough to give me the raise. I felt so intimidated asking for it. Like it took me a week to plan what I wanted to say and to draft the email to ask to see the the manager of the place because I was just so stressed out and I just kept thinking to myself, is it worth doing this? Like maybe I can just stick this out for a couple more months and then, you know, quit and leave. But um, there were a couple of coworkers who really pushed me to be like, you should just ask for it, you know, for the amount of work that you're doing, why not just go for it and ask? And I did. And they actually did end up giving me a raise. It wasn't anything crazy, but it was still, you know, a bit more. And it was good. It was good to have that outcome, you know, even if though I left a couple months later, just because to me, it was like, if you ask for things, sometimes you can get positive responses. And at the time, I was just so down on myself that I didn't think that was not possible. Okay. Ah, there's so many nuggets to pull out of this. <laughs> first first things first, you were an unpaid intern. Then you got referred by the person that you were an unpaid intern for. Yes. To, so you were obviously doing a great job for free. And then... <laughs> And then you then you got this other job, but you lowballed yourself because they asked you how much you should get, you know, paid for your work, and you just said, I don't know, uh, like a hundred um, a month. And then you were just kind of in this having this inner battle with yourself, being like, is it even worth asking for more money? Because like maybe I I don't know maybe, and you're trying to talk yourself out of it. But luckily, you had great colleagues that said, listen, Elsa, if you don't go and ask for this, I will or whatever. So, <laughs> That's yeah. that's really cool. So I guess lessons from that. One, don't ever work for free. Is that a fair takeaway? Like I am so anti-unpaid work now. Yes, 100%. I, I don't think anyone, whether it's an internship or not, no company should be asking for work for free because the, the harsh reality is regardless of you being an intern or not, the amount of work you're doing is at the same level as you know, someone else. If not harder, actually. It, exactly. You yourself. Exactly. Yeah. So no to unpaid work. Okay, no to unpaid work. And then the other thing is if you feel resentful when you get a paycheck, then you need to ask yourself some hard questions, I think is is something else that we've we've brought out of this conversation. You know, if if you feel like it's unfair you need to ask yourself, why do I feel like this is unfair? Maybe because you've undersold yourself and now you're just mm -hmm. resentful with the person that should be paying you what you deserve, but you feel like that's not happening. So you need to either leave to find people that do value you or yeah. you can talk to them and say, look, I'm putting a shift in here. Yep, 100%. <laughs> is, that, is that fair? That is fair. And if you have a personality like mine where I am very anti-confrontational, I don't like to make waves with anyone. You have to really push past that mentality because it, it can be a huge hindrance in asking for things and getting things that maybe you deserve because you're like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to bother them. I don't want to make them mad at me. Conflict. But like, yeah, exactly. No, you have, it's like the one main thing you have to push past to get what you want. A hundred percent. There's um there's a book that I read that I found really helpful. Maybe you'll find helpful, Elsa. Is mm -hmm. uh, Crucial Conversations by yeah, it's um 
by I've just looked it up. Uh, Kerry Patterson, Joseph Grenny, Ron McKillen, and Al Switzler. So it's co co written by a few different um, very interesting people. But essentially, they talk about how crucial conversations basically determine how much you get paid and what you, what you get from life. You know, your willingness to talk about difficult topics and ones that a lot of people shy away from. And uh, it really, really helped me with talking to bosses about getting paid more, talking to mm-hmm. clients, uh, and and just generally having the kind of self-confidence to talk to people. So if anyone's listening and is like resonating with Elsa and I's conversation, then have a check of that book. I will definitely check it out. Tell me about failure number two, when you let yourself stall on reworking your portfolio for a year. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, that, there are so many areas I went wrong with that. And I think about it a lot, even though my portfolio, like you said at the start, is finally done, um, finally updated. But I made my first portfolio in Webflow. In 2021, mid 2021 is when I first published that. And at the time, I thought it was the best thing in the world. I mean, maybe it was, probably wasn't, but I really liked it because it felt like me. It was my personality, my branding, my style, my everything. But like, obviously, the more work you do, the more skilled you become, the more experience you get. And something that you maybe worked on a year ago or two years ago, you might look back on it and be like, that's actually not that great because you know, you have a different mindset now. So a year or so after I launched that first portfolio is how I started to think about it. I just felt like it wasn't good enough. It wasn't really up the level that I wanted it to be at. I was so much better at Webflow, you know, a year later. So I knew that there was so much more that I could do with it. And I kind of grew to hate it. So I stopped updating it altogether. I think I had the same case studies on there for like two years and I never updated them because... I just didn't like the whole portfolio style. I was using my Behance um, more to send to clients and other people for jobs. At some point, I decided if I hate it so much and I don't want to use it, I should just revamp it. The thing is, and I'm sure a lot of other designers probably feel the same, working on something for yourself is a lot more difficult than working on something for someone else. I don't know, you're much more critical of your own work or you try out a bunch of designs and it's like none of them feel like the right fit for what you want. So I went through that for an entire year, essentially, where I went through a bunch of iterations for my portfolio. I would like spend a month working on it like hard and then a month or two not working on it at all because I was just I couldn't think of what to do with it. And initially, I wanted to get it done sooner because there were jobs that I was not applying to. There were opportunities I was letting pass by because I felt like I can't send them my portfolio link. It's just not good enough. It doesn't have my most recent work. So in my mind, I was like, this is affecting my work, my career. I need to get this done. My biggest regret isn't taking along with the portfolio just because the old one was still live. Like, that's fine. That happens. My biggest regret is just that I would, I passed on a lot of things that I wish I had applied to and pursued because I didn't think the portfolio I had would be good enough. And I really... If I could go back, I would have just done something really quick to send to those clients and to those companies. But at the time, I was just like, I'm going to have to let this pass by because I don't have, you know, anything to send. So I really do regret that. 
so the big advice there is just put something together that's of your best work mm-hmm. and send it send it to whoever your portfolio does not need to be a masterpiece it needs to inform the prospective client of what you can do yeah yeah i always bring up this example but grace walker she made her portfolio in a day and i think the interesting thing about her is she's obviously a very very talented designer you know she's been in the space a while she's got the portfolio work that is already beautiful yeah. so she can make but my that's exactly my point like she needs good yeah. work you need good work on your portfolio that yeah. is going to be what people are going to judge whether they are you or not and that's kind of it like i think we get so in our head like oh no we need yeah. this button interaction i want the <laughs> the letters to go up like one by one and then i and it's like no one cares <laughs> well not no one cares but i mean like ultimately that's not going to determine whether you get hired or not it's whether you even yeah. say hey i want to get hired here's my most recent work that's going right. to get hired or not that you are yeah. so so right like I mean, obviously, nice portfolios, like you said, are nice. I see all these beautiful portfolios on the award site, and I'm like, oh, my God, how do people do that? And they're gorgeous. But like you said, if it's more about the actual work content, if somebody sees that you did really good stuff, then they're going to reach out probably regardless and don't do what I did, basically. I think the thing is, though, a lot of web flowers, I feel like are designing for other web flowers. Like it's kind of like this weird webflow porn space that we're in, where we're just like, we're just like, hey, look at this little interaction which I did with GSAP or whatever. And if the clients, they they yes. don't necessarily have that kind of, I don't know, delicate palette. They are more caring about their business results, and you know that that might be a completely different success yeah. metric to what they're to what you yeah. might be kind of putting out there to the world. A hundred percent, yeah. Tell me about failure number three then. When you continued working with a client that mistreated one of their other consultants. Oof, yes, that's the big one. And I use the word mistreated because I couldn't think of any other word in English, but it might not be the right word. They didn't hit them or anything. It was not anything like that. Um, Yeah, I was wondering where this one was going to (laughs) go. It was not physical, but (laughs) no. Okay, I'll do my best to explain it. Obviously, while trying to anonymize everyone involved. Um, but essentially I was working with a client who had approached me on one of their products design, designing a product that they had and they were a startup. So it was something new that they were launching. So they were in the early phases and I was obviously kind of working on those early iterations of their designs. And it was honestly fine at first. Like I had no issues. I had like a fixed payment plan that I worked on for the initial MVP. And then I was working with them on a retainer basis for like updates that came up and about as we went along and somewhere along the line when I was on my retainer with them they asked if I could refer someone else to do um, a separate task essentially and so I was like okay cool you know I'm all about like I said if someone comes to me with something I can't do I will 100% try to refer someone I know Um, like I, I absolutely love doing that so I reached out to someone that I did know and I was like I have a client who I've been working on this product with and they're looking for this skill set, which I know you have, um, I know you're taking on freelance work. Do you want to, you know, maybe help out? And they were like, cool. So I introduced the client to that person. And essentially, I mean, that was it on my end at that time. You know, did the introductions, they did their work. A couple of months go by. And like I said, I don't really know what's going on. 
we're kind of in two different areas. I was in design and they were in a different part. So we weren't really communicating like that. But a couple months go by and they reach out um, to tell me that, hey, so I did my work for this client and it just doesn't seem like they are fully aware with what they want, which is already a big issue because sometimes I find that when you as an individual or you as a company or a client aren't too sure of what you want, especially with a product that hasn't been released yet, it's very difficult for the people doing the work to meet your expectations. Like we can't get things right if you aren't sure what exactly you want. It's going to be a lot of back and forth. So they were like, they didn't necessarily know what they want. So essentially anything that they worked on and submitted was kind of met with pushback because there was just no alignment in terms of what they wanted, which is one thing. I think everyone, every freelancer goes through that. That's not a main issue. The main issue came where it got to a point that person was no longer able to work with the client or they decided they couldn't work with the client anymore. Or I think the client maybe decided to terminate things, which is cool, except that there was money owed. And that's always a very sensitive issue at hand because when you're working on something and you agree on a price and then at the end of the day, someone decides that they don't want to pay you or they're going to pay you, but like a month or two months or three months later than you had agreed upon. It is a very sensitive issue for, I think, a lot of creatives, a lot of freelancers, because you're relying on that income, you know, to sustain you and sustain your livelihood. And when you do provide work, you expect to get kind of monetary compensation. So it took, I think, if not three months or longer for them to eventually get the money back that they owed. I'm very big on judging someone's character and who they are. And if someone were to do something to someone else, who's to say that they might not do the same to me? But at the time, I was also in a position where it's like, I didn't have a lot of freelance work going on. So this retainer was like pretty big for me. And I wasn't in the space to be like, I'm just going to terminate my relationship with this person. So I decided to kind of stay on my retainer with them, which is fine. I think we can all see the outcome of what you know the end of the story is in that I also ended up in a position where I was owed a certain amount of money. I am still owed a certain amount of money. Um, and I mean, I guess I could tell myself I told you so and I maybe should have ended things at the time. But I think it's more of a lesson on just looking at the decisions that someone makes with their other freelancers or other consultants and deciding whether or not you're willing to risk the same happening to you. But I do I do regret staying on longer, as long as I did, essentially. And brave. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot there. I mean, do you feel like you've held on to that sense of I mean, maybe you feel resentful towards this this client or or have you managed to kind of let it go and be like, that's a lesson learned. How have you kind of processed this now looking back in hindsight? I definitely don't feel resentment for the client. I think that the client, the person themselves is not a bad person by any means. Like, I don't feel that way at all. It's just that the circumstances were a bit hazy and maybe there wasn't as much transparency as there should have been. Because I honestly would have been fine with someone coming to me and saying, hey, our budget is a bit tight. Can we rework our retainer agreement and lower it a bit? Like that would have been totally fine with me. I think though, 
deciding to go with a different approach of letting things go on without being 100% certain if you can actually pay the people working for you is a different outcome altogether. But I look at it more as a mistake that I made and, you know, maybe I should have ended things with the client earlier or maybe I should have just thought about the situation in a slightly different manner. But I don't have any resentment towards the client. I think I moved past that for sure. Yeah, I think I had a similar situation where someone didn't pay me at the end of the project. And it was quite hard to kind of work out what to do because they lived in the States and I was in England. And it was just quite a weird thing like, you know, sending emails like, hey... (laughs) <laughs> wondered if you got my last two email <laughs> really intrigued to see if you could pay me for the work you know it's like like what am i exactly it's like get on my keyboard and be like listen here you <laughs> like it's just kind of a strange one or you can look at it and be like okay that happened right mm-hmm. on to the next thing and i think if you hold on to those feelings it can just um it's it's almost not worth the I mean, it de- obviously depends if it's like, you know, I, w- I was not earning very much for that job. But so it, maybe it wasn't like my financial livelihood. Right. And I was yeah. fortunate to be living at home with my family at the time. So that's another mm-hmm. thing. But yeah, it is kind of like a, a toss up between how much do I like emotionally want to put towards this fight? Right. And that's that's always a tough one i mean whenever it comes to like reminding people for payments i always i hate that feeling like like you said sending that email or that text message like hey by the way you know and whatever it is that they respond back with fortunately it hasn't happened really a lot in my career like i'm super glad about that very rarely um Mm -hmm. i think this was one of those instances where after you know a couple of texts you know asking for an update it's not like I'm letting go, like I might send another update a month from now, but it's not on my mind as much. I've just chosen to look at the situation as I probably messed up here. I probably should have made a different decision and it's cool. I can move on. I have other work I'm doing, other stuff I'm doing, and I can focus on that. That's, that sounds like a really healthy outlook to have. Yeah. I really resonate with that. And I'm sure anyone that's listening is like, that's a bummer. If it is more money though, this is a something that I've done, which has actually worked with a different client that didn't pay, and it was actually a lot more substantial. I threatened, I said <laughs> that I'd contacted a lawyer. Yeah, so it's kind of crazy, like, psychology thing. I was like, I've contacted a lawyer, and you should receive a letter within the next three days. They got straight back to me. Straight what? back to me. Yeah. Hadn't contacted any lawyer. Sent him a link of the lawyer, the law firm that I contacted, which was like... A local firm to him <laughs> but yeah oh my god so just putting it out there i mean as much <laughs> as i'm talking about letting go and being all zen <laughs> if you do want something that is a little bit more forceful that that actually did work for me so not sure if that's helpful right. for anyone out there um, <laughs> maybe maybe felt- that's bad to say uh on on, on this book it sounds so very to say I have contacted a lawyer. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> Something I'll consider. <laughs> so Elsa, tell me about your next failure. 
<clears throat> my next failure. Oh, that's a good one. I have a couple that are coming to mind. Okay, here's one. It's actually probably been mentioned as a failure before on this podcast, I, I guarantee. But I can foresee my next failure now that I'm in the agency building phase of things. Being trying to do too many things at once, leading to burnout. So I'm conscious that that could be a potential failure. But because I am conscious of it, I'm hoping that I will kind of work on ways to avoid it. That I won't try to take on too much. But I think it's something that can easily happen in the throw of things. You just find yourself doing a whole lot when you should be doing much less. But um, fingers crossed that that will not be my failure in the next year or so. Thanks so much for listening to episode 41 of Webflail. And thanks so much to Elsa for coming on the podcast. One of the biggest takeaways from this episode for me is about having difficult conversations. As Elsa mentions, she didn't want to rock the boat by asking for a higher salary, which is what she thought she deserved. However, she advises pushing through that fear and being prepared to ask for what you want. It can be a huge hindrance in getting what you deserve unless you're prepared to state your case and say what you want. In Scotland, there's a great phrase, shy bairns get nout. (laughs) Shy people don't get what they want and deserve is basically the translation there. And if you need to give yourself a pep talk before a difficult conversation, just imagine a Scottish person telling you that shy bairns get nout. Next episode, we have the force of nature that is Kabaza from Flux Academy for episode 42. Stay tuned. Have a great week, web playlists.